Welcome back, everyone. This is the Some Say Podcast, and I'm Holly. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Um, and I just wanted to say, I think from now on, I will most likely be posting every other week. That makes the most sense right now as far as production and, and having conversations. And so we'll be going from one, once per week to once every other week for the time being. So thanks for looking out for us. Um, next, I just wanted to say I had the pleasure of speaking with Martha Cooley. And she was a professor of mine um, in grad school at Adelphi. And we had a far-ranging conversation, a little bit longer than most episodes, but I felt as though she had so much to say. Um, so we, we just kept talking. I also wanted to make a note that toward the end, when talking about a writer, Entozaki Shange, who had just recently passed right before the interview, I got a little overwhelmed. So I wanted to be very clear who I was speaking about. Antozaki Shange. She passed away October 27th of 2018. And you may have heard of her, but she is best known for her choreo poem, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. I know that many people cited her work, this work, as something revolutionary for them. And for me, I, I touch upon it briefly when talking to Martha, but it really felt like one of the very first times literature was presented in a way that felt accessible, that felt right there. and. She wrote the choreo poem in the 70s. I became aware of it sometime in the 90s, but it spoke directly to me and to many people I knew, and again, to many writers who have cited her as a moment where they felt, oh, maybe, maybe writing is for me. Maybe this is something that I can look at because I'm feeling a connection to this work. So I just wanted to take a moment to address that before before you hear me at the end of this this conversation kind of stumbling on my words quite quite shockingly the the windows kind of knocked out of me when when I try to talk about her so I just wanted to be very clear about that um, as far as this interview I will have a few more words to say at the very end I hope you guys enjoy this conversation that I had with Martha and take a look for any other material on Martha, I have some of her links up at the website at hollyameaton.wixsite.com backslash some say. Okay, enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Some Say podcast. I'm Holly, and I am thrilled to be here with Martha Cooley. Martha, welcome. Thank you, Holly. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, all right. So this podcast is, you know, my small contribution to putting a little bit of positivity out into the world. Um, I met you at Adelphi. Um, I was going for my MFA and you were one of the teachers that I didn't, I don't think I would have expected to have. Um, you taught fiction and I was a playwright. So I kind of find it almost, I'm not going to say magical because that's silly, but 
it was kind of great to be forced into other genres, even though I was willingly, you know, in the fiction class. Um, but I love that our paths were able to cross in that way. I think a lot of times that's not the case. You can't do that. Um, so talk to me about everything you do. You do so many things. Um, f- you know, writing fiction is just one small piece of it. Translations, um, essay writing, now memoirist. Why do you do what you do, and what gives you the joy to continue with it? Well, that's, of course, one of those huge, what do they call them, two-beer stories or $66,000 questions. Have I got the right number there? Um, I think so. That could be, you know, grist for many a conversational mill, so to speak. But, um, I mean... And and you began talking about positivity, Holly, about the need for that now. Right. I, th- I think certainly from the time I was even a small child, I felt, as, as all children do, I wasn't special in this way, but <laughs> one, one feels the press of the adult surround with its negativities, with its fear, mainly. You feel adult fear as That's a kind right. of ambient weather. And, right. and then you look as a kid for what's going to kind of mitigate, um, you know, that fear and... You find it in all kinds of places, but I think children naturally find it in in sound, in music, and mm. in in the music of language as well as absolutely in, in music as we typically construe it. And I mean, I think I I've always just felt a kind of release and relief in language itself. Right. Not so much because I have full confidence in its um, communicative sure. <laughs> capacities. In fact, I. You know, I, th- I think all of what we write, whether we're playwrights or whatever genre we may be writing in, if we're writers, and even if we're not, even if we we just use speech as we use it right. in our daily speech acts, we're all endlessly having to deal with the fact that, you know, expression has as its surround and its source um, silence. Right. You know, we're always having to bring up through words this stuff from a silent place and right. and hope that it gets out there in a language, and I don't mean, you know, English versus something else, right, but in a language that others will understand, you know? Right. So, um, as a kid, I was just always, you know, even as a kid, um, I was just always aware of the sort of challenge of that, but also the, the pleasure taken in trying to meet the challenge. So, I think, you know, you look at babies and the way they just make word music and they like mouth feel of yes. words and and it goes from there and you know from early on I was just jotting down little things and then <laughs> gradually that sort of practice becomes for someone who's going to be a writer necessary absolutely and it, and it did for me and so the positivity was always that this was some counter in some way to what was fearful um, and then after a while you know practice becomes just sort of written into the body too the body becomes used to it to it being this way I read an interesting little interview with the poet Natalie Diaz just this morning and she was talking I guess she played basketball I mean I read it quickly so I didn't get the whole backstory (laughs) on her and basketball okay but I play basketball too and people make the same (laughs) you (laughs) well I mean you know notice the sort of already sexist underpinning of my assumption there but you play basketball yeah really but you know like why the hell not yeah um but she was saying that there's something about writing and the sense of momentum 
she learned something about momentum in basketball. Oh my gosh, yes. That she's sort of transferred over to to, to writing. writing, and she feels like writing for her is very physical. That That's not fantastic. physical, like you know, you have to heft a big pen right. and hurl it like a lance. It doesn't work that way, mm-hmm. but. But physical in that the body is always implicated, and I'm always asking my students to think about where in the body they're experiencing, or one of their characters may be experiencing something, to try to um, make sure that they stay in touch with those sensations, and somehow that can help them deliver a larger sense of the character or the character's context. So I've been oh, I've been just kind of great. mindful <laughs> of yeah. Well, that's another part of the positivity too that we. We clench up when we're right. in these very negative times. We we literally, um, our bodies just go into a kind That's of right. fight or flight thing. Absolutely. And, you know, you know <laughs> no, and, and it's so funny that you, you touch upon that because I do feel like I have retreated into my head. And it's been a little bit of you know, almost like a safe space, like, okay, I'll just kind of, you know, and that's it. And it is so important to be grounded in your body while you can. Um, And so that's, that's amazing. And it's, I also love, you know, Diaz talking about basketball, because that was part of the hardest part of it for me. Like, you just always had to be moving, and you always had to be ready to go and uh, stop on a dime and go the other way. Well, that's right. Just constant. And so that was what was great about it for me. But I mean, I was a terrible basketball player, don't get me Mm -hmm. wrong. But you know, that's, I've never thought of it in the way of writing or comparing it to writing. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it's really important to be grounded physically. Right. And right, I think right. that's probably pretty hard for me, at least right now, or trying, you know, trying to get into characters and where they are mm-hmm. and where they're feeling, you know, as far as their body goes. Mm-hmm. Well, God knows I'm no basketball player either. <laughs> it was, it was not my sport, but I did yeah. find her as you say, her sort of making those two things bump up against yes. one another in in my mind in ways that they never had, and just sort of thinking about not so much athletics but just physical activity and how how we tend to divorce it from this other Absolutely. kind of creativity that we may be striving for or enacting, and and it's it's just really a mistake. And I, I see this in my students that you know they their sedentariness, they're being hunched over their phones, yes. all of this, it's very antithetical to this sense of momentum. That's right. And also to the sort of plasticity or elasticity is a better word, I guess, that's required. You know, if you're going to stay steady in these times, rigidity does not do it. You that's know, right. You become brittle. And and so, you know, I'm, I'm mindful now of, of how much I need to just do the smallest things, like exhale frequently because right. I'm holding my breath. That's right. Um, so am I. And, and just the, you know, shifting position side to side, literally that kind of moving, that, that sense of the body being able to change its orientation in space. I mean, That's you right. know as a playwright, I mean, you're already in your mind's eye and in, in all of your imaginative resources when you're a playwright, you're thinking about things three-dimensionally. That's and it's right. different from the way uh, a fiction writer or an essayist or a poet might do it That's not right. not totally different but there's there's still it, it's it's sort of a it's front and centered earlier on in your training than it would have been ever for me and mine well so. it you know it absolutely is and it's funny that you say that because I think probably one of the hardest things about playwriting for me was being able to see them in my head acting out 
you know, mm-hmm. their actions saying the words, but existing in the space. Right. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things I've had to learn and one of the most difficult things I've had to figure out was, well, if you have three people, if you have four people on stage and two people are talking, what are those other two people doing? Mm-hmm. They can't stand there and, and fade away. Mm-hmm. They need to either be doing something, or they need to be up the stage, or they need to have a reason for their, right. you know, um, silence or not right. moving. Um, and it's it's interesting that you kind of compare it to, you know, fiction and poetry, because I think you're right, that it's not the same, you're not solving the same problem. Well, yes, you can, you can, you can manage that question of where people are in space and what they might be doing while action is being foregrounded somewhere else. You manage it differently in a poem or, right. or, or in an in a story or a novel or or in an essay for that matter. Right. I mean one of the things I'm finding in my own work now is I'm I'm increasing well we now have it at Delphi we, at, at our universities in our MFA program we have a mixed genre MFA which means oh. we're really interested in putting pressure on genre boundaries and definitions, which is going on out there in the larger literature sphere, right? right? I mean, so many writers of prose are questioning these distinctions and saying what exactly is the difference between creative nonfiction and fiction, and if there is one, why does it matter? And and who's enforcing those distinctions and why? Right. And then there's just the question of hybridity. What happens when there is really more of a mill, not an either-or, but an actual creation of something that feels new to the reader, if if not also to the maker, and are right. uh, and also to the maker, and so so all of this has captured my imagination and my energy, and it and it feels like this this sense of momentum which the body naturally wants to participate in is is happening for me anyway in these times more with more a, a greater sense of urgency, like I want to do this exploration this questioning of boundaries and borders and I you know I think there's a pretty good reason for that I mean we're hearing horrible things about boundaries and borders in our political life absolutely and in our in our national discourse around gender I mean all of it is is crazy making and stifling and so that's right and and cruel and so you know if through art I mean you ask me why I do this as a child it was liberating of a certain endless anxiety that I feel is my baseline setting sure. anyway. Um, and, and now questioning, you know, is fiction, is, is writing novels really what I want to be doing going forward? I've, I've finished one, it's making its rounds, um, and I'm very happy about that. But I, I've been turning increasingly in recent years to other things, to translation, which is sure. nothing if not a questioning of borders, right. and um, to essay writing and to memoir as essay too and so all these things um for me are where the positivity lies in in my own private life and and I think for a lot of people you know remaking yourself in in the sense of trying out new forms trying out new ways and means is is crucial it always has been but particularly now right um, particularly when it's being so squelched there has to be a concerted pushback it's 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 a political act um, as well I think this this kind of yes it is um, creative exploration I mean everything you said I agree with right now you know especially about the reinvention and the creative act I mean even just sitting here doing this podcast um, and I've mentioned this to you it's it's such a different sort of mode 
you know, of expression, um, having someone sit across from you, Mm -hmm. having a conversation with them. I have plenty of conversations with people as it is. And, you know, I felt the need to kind of get some of those on tape, you know, just Mm -hmm. get some of those on the record. Mm -hmm. And it's a completely different thing than, you know, putting together a story for the stage that people will kind of either get lost in or love or hate or whatever's going on there. Um, This real-time conversation of, you know, what are we doing? Why do we do it? It's it's different for me. It's something that I love. It's something that I did in my life anyway. Um, But I think to do it as an expression of creativity has been a little bit of a change for me that you know, I didn't think would be such a change. Like, I really just thought, well, I'll just be recording people that I'd be talking to anyway. That's not really that different. And yet it's sort of bringing all these different parts of my creativity up. It's mm-hmm. making me use different mm-hmm. parts of my brain. Sure. Um, sure. Learning the software has been its own challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also feels very much like, oh, this is another extension of my creativity. This is another way to explore character, mm-hmm. explore people, mm-hmm. and another way to really to really think about the world through someone else's eyes. Well, I think a, a, a crucial word in here is conversation. Yes. You know, and um, humans have conversed since, you know, <laughs> dawn of time, et cetera. <laughs> right. But, right. Um, you know, the, the phenomenon of the podcast and of the interview, I mean, these two are not, sure. are not new. The technology that sure. enables them and ways in which audiences are cultivated are new. But... This sense of, of a series of conversations, too, of, of a sensibility, yours, that yes. engages with others, um, always bringing some similar questions into play and then seeing how those questions get um, manipulated. I mean that in the best possible sense, get, get handled yes. from the word mano, from the Italian, you know, from that's the yes. language I go to <laughs> in addition to English. And, yes. You know, sort of the words held in the hands between two people and sort of passed back and forth as if, as if uh, by hand. I, it, it, it creates um, a, a, a focus within each particular discussion and then uniting them all that someone can then track as a kind of trail. I'm walking this trail of conversations that Holly does, 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 Questions, you know, and, yeah. and I think that that's that is momentum, but it's also continuity. One one word I'm thinking about a lot these days is consistency, and the mm. reason I am is that I'm putting together an anthology. This has been my dream to do this for a very long time, and I'm grateful to a new publishing house here in New York called the Public Space Books, which is the book spinoff new of new spinoff of a public space oh, literary magazine, wow. which is really one of the best lit mags yes. around. And yes. so they've begun this, this book publishing venture, and I'm doing an anthology um, in which a variety of writers take on the notion of consistency and talk about it in terms of their own process, in terms of their own response to the word, what it means for them. And the reason I'm doing it is because yeah. one of my favorite writers, Italo Calvino, the yes. Italian, yes. he of Invisible Cities and other such miraculous books, <laughs> he wrote a, a, a book called Six Memos for the Next Millennium, and he wrote it at the turn of the last, uh, you know, when we hit the, the two zero <laughs> right. zero zeros. And he was trying to identify 
qualities that make literature what it is, that are essential to literature. Yes. And he came up with, with six that he was going to lecture on. He was only able to give a lecture on five of them. It's a wonderful book. I won't go into what the other qualities are. I'll yes. send your listener running <laughs> to the book. But the six, which he never got to talk about because he died, was yep. consistency. And the only notes that oh, were wow. found in his files about it were a reference to Herman Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener, oh, which yes. is has the famous line, I would prefer <laughs> not, not to. to. <laughs> yes, and, and which is consistently repeated, of right. course, by, right. by um, our poor protagonist. Yes. And so... It's obvious that Calvino was going to make some reference to that. What else he was going to say about it, we don't know. Consistency. And That's what's also curious is that in Italian, unlike English, when we say consistency, what do you think of? You think of like cake batter on the one hand. You know, oh, sure. Is what's its texture. texture. And, right. But then you also think about like moral consistency. Like moral he always behaves well. Right. Uh, to give one example. But sure. But that sort of continuity or sure. reliability in that way. Um, and in Italian, you have two different words. One is consistenza, and that's cake batter, so to speak. And then the other oh, is coerenza, coerenza, which is coherence. Okay. And you can't use one word for both. And Calvino actually chose the English word. So he was interested in a word that would draw in all those meanings and probably more. And so I'm asking my contributors to think through what it would mean to be consistent now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I right. mean, Emerson right. famously said, it's, you know, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds or small minds. I can't remember the exact quote. Um, he thought it was a dreadful thing. And, right. You know, you always had to be changing, changing, changing. Right. And then, well, one could say, but he was consistent in that. Right. And, I mean, that's not right. quite enough to, this conversation could stop there if one right. wanted, but I'm already receiving some contributions that are really electrifying in how they get me to think about, and I hope we'll get the readers to think about this idea. Uh, you know, it's, it's multiple possibilities and forms. And so... Um, you know, I, I bring that up because I feel like in these times we're all looking for some kind of consistent through line right. of I can trust this or I can That's believe right. in that, um, I can hope for this, you know. But at the same time, we're trying to throw off constraints, you know, right. don't binary me, don't, <laughs> right. don't stuff me in a binary, right. don't, uh, you know, shove me behind a wall or a fence, etc. And so... You know, there's a tension, a very useful tension there that I think warrants exploring. And our ambivalence individually and collectively to being consistent needs to be reckoned with. But so too does our, oh, let me just pivot this way, that way, and the other way. Sure. You know, that's not in and of itself a virtue. Um, right. You know, so, so all these are, are sort of stuff I'm puzzling with as I puzzle over what kind of writing I'm doing now and why. And I, I tend to feel like I'm just writing things. <laughs> I just call them things. <laughs> You're writing things. Okay, yes. so what, what does that mean to you? What do you mean by that? Well, writing rather things. Than, than sort of immediately classified by genre. Okay. So I'm exploring thus and thus and thus set of questions. Okay. And I'm trying to find a language adequate to or um, well-matched with those questions. Okay. And by language, I also mean a kind of music of the language. Like, I'm trying to find a rhythm in, yes. in prose as well as sonic qualities, yes. um, as well as structural um, 
qualities that will be that will sort of best work with I don't want to say deliver because that's as if I've got something yes. in my head that just has to yes. I've just got to find the right box side and I ship it off in UPS and we're done and right. it, it's not that way right so that's why I'm l- reluctant to say what I'm working on in terms of genre but that makes total um, sense and it's it's so interesting that you bring up structure and also you know music of language because I've always struggled with structure, um, but I do find that when I'm really in the moment and I'm writing my characters and they're really coming through, there is a musicality to the language, whether they're cursing or whatever's happening. It's like you can you can feel it and it just you know it comes through in a certain way. So I love that you're exploring that and not you know sort of binding it to just one genre that you're open to where it takes you. Right. Um, right. And I, I really find this interesting with the idea, you know, the back-to-back ideas of reinvention and consistency. Um, and I love, okay, so now I'm just going to j- jump into this because I wanted to bring this up for a moment. And before I kind of lose track of it completely, I just want to bring it up now. Um, in your book, in Guesswork, there was a line, there were several things that stood out to me. I think it's beautiful, just so you know. Um, But there is one line that really struck me that I wanted to get to, and I think you've kind of already touched on it um, here and there, but the line was, for my own part, I have been practicing wordlessness. And so thinking about that, thinking about the chaos of the world and thinking about how you're not, you know, binding yourself to genre right now, um, I'd just like to know where you stand with that statement or you know, are you still there? Can you still relate to that? And what does that mean to you at the moment? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, first of all, Guesswork was not an intentional book. It's my right. most recent. I did not set out to write a memoir. Right. I found myself, as the as the book relates, I found myself in a in a place in my life after multiple losses of people close to me. Mm-hmm where I I felt that I was just spinning my wheels, really having trouble producing my own work of any kind. I mean, I was able to show up at school and be with my students and and hopefully serve their needs, but I wasn't serving my own very well. And um, I was very fortunate in having a sabbatical um, from my university for a year, and my husband's Italian, and so we took ourselves off to this deserted medieval village, which neither of us knew, and found ourselves most improbably living in this old stone house in the middle of this nowhere, really, Yes. up on a hill. Very beautiful nowhere. And beautiful descriptions, but go ahead. (laughs) Well, it was my first real immersion in the natural world, too, because of its isolation. Our neighbors were more cats than humans and more birds than cats and, you know, (laughs) like that. Mm -hmm. And, And so I felt first of all that what I needed to do was to just unburden myself of this sense of stuckness by just writing small pieces, essays I call them, personal essays, um, kind of chronicling my experience there. Yes. And then as they accumulated, um, I began to feel that, okay, on the one hand it it felt good after a long period of sort of um, blockage to actually be expressing myself in words. Yes. Um, but at this other time, at the other, on the other hand, as the line you found said, there was an experience of wordlessness, of silence. Yes. Um, 
that was really important to me. Um, the city is an extremely noisy, noisy place, both metaphorically and literally. And this was the first time I'd had a chance to just close the door on mm. that. And I found it remarkably um, healing and mm. um, beautiful and unnerving and sure. disquieting. And yeah. so that that tension was also really curious to be in. And then, of course, there was this underlying thrum of of um, pain, not just from the losses that had been, but from one that I knew was imminent, which was my mother, right. who was very ill then and who died at the end of my sabbatical time. And right. so gradually, um, and I was helped in this too as I began to string these things together and think, do I have a book in here, and if so, what might it be? Still not really thinking of it as a memoir. I thought of it as a collection of linked essays, and I Absolutely. still sort of think of it as a memoir and essays. But right. but gradually, in any case, with, with some other editorial eyes on it, it sort of hit me that there was this through line, which was my mother mm -hmm. um, and her experience of approaching death and my experience of her all along. And so then wow. wordlessness took on other, other meanings because of the difficulty of describing that, the imminence of that loss because of the fact that she was deaf and blind. Um, you know, there were not fully deaf, I could still communicate, but with difficulty. And so there were all sorts of ramifications of this wordlessness that, that I had to contend with in a different sort of way. Um, and that was really liberating for me, to let go of novel. To I was working on my novel then, and I made headway in it, but I really put it aside for the most part to do this while oh, I was wow. there. And then I came back and I finished the novel within the next couple of years. But this took priority, and I hadn't planned on it. Yeah. And so what would consistency have meant? It would have meant that I'd gird my loins and shove my way That's through right. the novel That's against right. this impulse to do something else. And yet, maybe I was indeed being consistent in some other manner that I was having trouble understanding or naming at the time. Um, and, you know, I, I also found some new kinds of consistencies as far as um, kind of methods of being and using, being with and using language that I could not have found if I was only working on that novel. So mm -hmm. I, I began this book, but I was playing around with through the translation with other modes of narrating. Yes. And I was also still working on stories. Um, so, you know, it was always a mix. Yes. Um, not consistent in that sense. Right. Inconsistent. Right. Um, and I, so I don't really think anyone can talk about their own sense of consistency without talking about their own inconsistencies and trying to understand what they gain or lose from either of those concepts and how the concepts are a lot more slippery. <laughs> well, they are slippery and I think I think when we allow ourselves to maybe let go of things for a while or put them down, mm -hmm. you know, put them away for the moment and come back to them, I think when we allow that, it just opens up a new space mm -hmm. for a different thing to come through. Yeah. And yeah. I love that you're able to do that and I love, you know, the result of that and I I love that you're kind of not just sticking you know strictly to okay well this has to be an essay collection and this has to be you know because I think I just think that having that flexibility is kind of a way forward mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know in general and I also think not being I don't know just not being 
you know, bound to things that we're supposed to be doing or that we're supposed to love um, no matter what, you know. And when I say that, I even mean, again, you know, just with this mode of expression of the podcast and doing playwriting, but also, you know, also kind of playing with essay writing right now, um, it feels like I'm cheating. <laughs> like, it just feels like I shouldn't be, I should be focusing on something else than what I'm focusing on. And I feel giving yourself permission to let go of those expectations of ourselves. I think, I think that's the only way to be at this point. Well, you know, I, 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 I think particularly for women, Right. A certain um, giving over to a sense of restlessness is always a yes. good thing. And, yes. um, you know, we, we have anyway trouble with gr- the granting of permission. Yes. And we live in a culture where we're always, you know, at some level thinking I ought to ask someone if that's okay. That's you know, right. There's a kind of entrainment that way that's, that's been right. going on. Or I ought to I ought to try to uh, you know make things easier for self and others by by being sort of more collaborative or cooperative in this way that way or the other way, all fine and well. And I'm not saying that men are are consistently or only yes um, you know directed at sort of satisfying their own curiosities, um, creative or expressive or whatever. It's not it's never that simple. But I'm trying to honor my own restlessness as much as possible. It's it's also I think related in some way to age. I mean, I hate to pull the age card, but <laughs> spring chicken I am not. And, you know, I'm just mindful that um, yes. I don't want to waste time That's right. sort of noodling with myself about, oh, is this okay or does That's this right. represent, am I abandoning or cheating? There is no such thing, really. That's right. I mean, I think the cheating of self just comes from from stifling oneself and and all else is just exploration you know it's just Agreed. that's that's all and i'm trying also to employ that in my reading life to just read you know ever more widely and to be very um just follow my nose completely i've always read that way i'm not much of a planned reader uh, you know i don't i don't i typically don't have a a list of i've got to read this and then this and then this or i'm not typically reading to anything i haven't okay. done that in a serious way since writing The Archivist, my first novel, yes. when there was stuff about Kabbalah that I really had to read to more know. about. Yes. But, but now I find myself, I'll just sort of Google this or look this up, look that up yes. in a very um, s- sort of spontaneous way. I have, a, I have a piece coming out in Agni that's about siblings, but it's also about Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Oh, wow. And it's about the 1925 Expo in Philly, which one of my grandfathers was involved in. It just oh, wow. hopscotches all over. Yeah. And some of that was made, that hopscotching was made possible by the Internet, by the ease That's and rapidity right. with which. I mean, this sounds like I'm giving my students carte blanche to just look at Wikipedia <laughs> no, and think it's God's truth. you got to be careful, but you know what? But yes. there are certain sort of basic facts and fact-checking that one can yes. do quite easily without having to physically go to a library. And That's right. I miss card catalogs and the smell of the paper, but, yes. but I like having this ease of access and I like what it's doing to my sense of possibility with what I'm what I'm following when I follow my nose and, sure. and when I read what I'm what I'm trying to explore um, well it's also the same idea of you know 
you seem as though, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you seem as though you would be the type of person who would go and dive into a library if you had to, if you needed to, if you wanted to know something, but not everyone has that opportunity or that access. So I do feel like the internet, as wild west as it still kind of is, has really just leveled the playing field, at least in some ways, for people wow. to just get their hands on information. It that certainly has, including they can have access to libraries. I mean, course. that's the sort of miracle yeah. here. So it you know, what used to there used to be maybe physical obstacles for people that's to right. getting to a library. That's right. and God knows now with the cutting of funding on library, we won't even go there. You My know, husband's librarian, uh, we won't even go yeah. there. <laughs> so no. there's all of it's that. Awful. But, that's right. Um, you know, I, I, I'm glancing over here at this piece of paper yes. I brought because I found this this morning and I found it very lovely and this is maybe a good moment to introduce it into yes. our conversation. Please. But I was reading Narrative, which does a, they put out a weekly, Narrative magazine, their online yes. thing, they put out a weekly thing. I'm using the word thing a great deal, am I not? Um, I kind of but, love it, but I, I do. <laughs> it's, it's, I would put an X by it were it on a student work. But yes. Anyway, there was a little essay they reprised by Virginia Woolf about whom I've recently finished writing an essay that will come out in the AWP Chronicle. Um, so I've, she's been on my mind a lot. Yes. And the essay that they narrative was citing is called Hours in a Library. And she has this to say about readers and reading. And notice how it's gendered. I mean, this mm -hmm. is Virginia from, you know, in her time, used the he. Um, sure. But I've been immersed in her three guineas where she's very much, <laughs> um, she's got some things to say about those he's. Yes. So, but for, anyway, except <laughs> the he is what it is. And here's yes. what she says. For the true reader is essentially young. He is a man of intense curiosity, of ideas, open-minded and communicative, to whom reading is more of the nature of a brisk exercise in the open air than of sheltered study. He trudges the high road, he climbs higher and higher upon the hills until the atmosphere is almost too fine to breathe in. To him it is not a sedentary pursuit at all. And I think that's so beautiful it to, is. you know, to make of, this takes us almost back to the beginning, to make of reading um, you know, the analogy to hiking, to climbing, to going Absolutely. higher, to breathing in a lighter air, and to think of it, you know, as a youthful, and always a youthful thing, that it That's makes right. you younger, um, that, you know, right. reading should always be that kind of invigorating, um, vivifying activity, and, and not as we're you know, schooled to think right. early on, like, now I have to read, <laughs> right. and, and, you know, I sit in my chair. Your and homework I, and that pill, yeah. and you've got to do this. Right. It can actually be something that frees you up, brings you places. If you can't travel, you learn but through of books. Course. But, but the fact that she also embodies it in that way is, I think, very beautiful, that she connects it to the body um, and to air, you know, to the sort of necessary oxygen for Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Um, That's great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for bringing that. Yeah. Um, I just want to circle back for just a moment and talk very briefly, and you've, you've also, you've already touched upon this um, for a moment, you know, talking about just being aware of not wanting to waste time. And I found there was, you know, a recurrence in your, and I guess, I don't know if this would fall under consistency, maybe it would, um, but you talked a lot about, you know, hourglass and send in the hourglass, and you kind of returned to that image several times, and I thought that was really a great way to kind of express almost this, 
almost this feeling of being very aware of this ticking, you know, of this clock, yeah. of this time moving forward. Um, where, where exactly, let's see, I'm not, ex I'm not exactly sure how I want to frame this. How did you decide to make that a recurring image in your essays? Because it comes up more than once and in more than one place. Mm -hmm. um, how did you land on this image? And what about it? Um, did you have to sort of consciously bring it in? Was it on your mind always? How, how did you decide to bring that in and to interweave that into more than one one place? The image of the hourglass per se? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just it, mm -hmm. it comes up several times. Yeah, well, it was an object I found in yeah. the house, actually. Yeah. Um, well, you know, they're, they're, I, I, I often say to my students when, when they're crafting their stories, where's the clock? And I don't mm. mean, you know, literal clock on yeah. the wall. But one, one looks for that thing that provides momentum, to go right. back to that word again, that, right. that gives the forward drive to a narrative or to a play or to a poem. I mean, there's always something or some things that together um, create this sense of forward movement. Mm -hmm. And um, time is, is, whether it's an acknowledged element of a narrative or not, it's always there to be accounted for. Mm -hmm. And one one ignores it at one's peril because things go <laughs> right. slack. You know, you have That's that right. sense of the energy dipping and of, of treading water prose happening and all of that That's stuff. Right. So, so for me, the the clock in my sabbatical year was pretty clear. It's mm -hmm. called you know sabbatical. Right. <laughs> they don't give it to you forever. I right. wish they would. I'm going to bring that up with my administration. But um, they they. Spe they specify this is how long you get to not be um, in attendance in classes and meetings and all. You're doing your work, but you're not on campus. So there was that clock. And then, obviously, there were the twin clocks of, you know, the experiences of lives ending that I'd been through. Each had its own clock that then wound down, as it were. Um, and then there was my mother, who it wasn't clear was... You know, it wasn't absolutely clear to me was absolutely dying, but who, as time went on, seemed increasingly um, frail, and um, you know, who I I just could no longer ignore because of her age and because of her various physical maladies. I could no longer ignore as you know the, the issue of she's probably not going to be here long, and so that. You know, those twin urgencies of I, I've only been given this much time to do whatever work I'm going to do right now. And there's this this person so precious to me. I know she's not going to be here much longer. And there was that sense that she would periodically be an hourglass in the sense of, say, how's it going? Or when will I get to, you know, she would occasionally say sort of jokingly, you better hurry up and write that stuff. Right. And, you know, that had been a through line in our relationship all along with my mother sort of right. goading me in that manner. Um, but it took on this new, uh, this new so. urgency. Um, and so the hourglass seemed an apt image there, you know. And it, in, in, in threading her through it, I also had to thread through how she managed her own self-remakings. I mean, she wasn't born blind. Right. She gradually went blind, and that yeah. required a series of moves, inner and outer, for her to be accommodated to that. Right. Um, and um, a naturally creative person, she then took on several different modes of self-expression. She had always played the piano. She kept playing it. 
but she learned how to weave, which I talked about mm -hmm. somewhat in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and she became quite a reader, not that she hadn't been, but she was listening all the time to talking books. And right. so that became a dialogue that we always had, but that itself took on new urgency, you know, where she mm -hmm. would say during that year, hey, I'm, I've, like, I just got through, you know, this or that book. How come you're, like, where are you? you know? <laughs> That's so, nice. Sort of throwing down That's the gauntlet, nice. really, to me. Absolutely. Ah, wonderful. Um, let's see. This has been such a great conversation. I would like to talk to you just a little bit before we go um, about what your favorite part of putting your work out into the world and maybe what's your least favorite part. <laughs> so that's such a huge question. Um, but I think it's important, you know, for someone who is, who has accomplished, who has published their work, who has, you know, gotten somewhere with their art to kind of discuss, you know, not just the, the best parts or the, the successful parts, but also the parts that maybe don't work. And you've kind of touched upon this thing, you know, you've touched upon this a little bit, um, but what, what have you learned from failure? What have you learned from, you know, from success? What do you love? What do you hate? Huh. Go anywhere within that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, the, the first thing, and it's, yeah. I'm sure I'm not the first who's said this to you and, or quoted this, but I always think of Beckett saying, fail better. Um, oh, yes. And, you know, so I'm, I'm not terribly interested in, I, I'm, I'm not as sensitive to the question of failure as I used to be in right. that, for instance, if something, if I send something out and it gets turned down, it's like, well, okay, fine, you know, right. I, I have a much thicker skin about yes. all of that. Um, I mean, you know, I've seen too many novelists go through a process of having to send out their book over and over and over. It's a bad time for literary fiction. Right. Um, particularly, I think, for long-form stuff, you know, novels um, are um, just challenging if they're literary, and right. the market is small, and so I'm, I'm in a protracted struggle now to get my third book published, and I knew it would be this way, so there it is. Right. Um, I, I mind it so much less than I would have even a few years ago. Um, so what, you know, what I, what I enjoy about success if you will if if that is if that's defined only i don't know holly if that's defined only in terms of publication you're in trouble that's One gets right. in trouble that's so right. um i you know the, the sense of pleasure i'm able to take it a reorientation feels more like success now yes. um, than it used to Good. when i was too much focused on well, where am i going to get something new in print right that said it's ironically been proving a little easier to get essays um, published than i thought it would be i mean my work has the the guesswork book uh, came together because i was publishing the constituent essays, okay. and since then I've published both literary and personal essays yes. with much more facility than I would have thought. So I feel like it's because that permission giving happened, right. and I was enjoying it, that somehow then the publication came, you know. I was ready for this new mode. Um, I found my voice in it, and it's working. Um, yes. And so that's happy making. I, I love when something does come out and I'm able to talk to students or readers I don't know about it. I love that yes. because I love just hearing. I'm always surprised by what people say or think or ask. That's a really fun part of it and a very rewarding part of it. So I'll never tire <laughs> of that. But um, Good. 
Yeah, I don't know if that gets at what you wanted <laughs> I think to know. So. I think so. Um, all right, before we go, one last thing. Um, do you have any kind of, and, you know, as a professor and as someone who has taught for years in more than one place, do you have any advice to a creative person who is feeling maybe kind of stuck or overwhelmed, n- not just by themselves, maybe by the world, maybe by, you know, any combination of, of factors? Um, what do you suggest for someone to sort of push out of that, to, to get through that kind of a moment? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mean, gosh, would that I had, I know, right? like I had the perfect the answer. answer. <laughs> really. um, right. But I mean, my, my undergraduate students will sometimes come and say, you know, I'm, I want to be a creative writer, but how do I, what do I do? How do I do this? Or I want to be a literary scholar. How do I do this? You know, if I don't want to teach, how do I sort of be right. a citizen in the Republic of Letters is yes. how I like to think of it, you yes. know, which is also necessarily a small d Democrat in the larger, you know, um, national context and international context in which we live. And, I, you know, I always say, first of all, try to have a regular practice yes. um, of whatever art um, galvanizes you. Yes. Take care of your body. Try to, you know, really be mindful of your body's involvement in all this. Yes. And I'll often suggest that if people want to find a way to make money, too, like find an organization that matters to you. Mm -hmm. Look at their their presence in the world, um, both their physical presence and their web presence. And, you know, be creative. Say, oh, this and this and this is working really well in how you guys present yourself or how you're problem solving or what your, you know, what your strategic sort of vision seems to be. But I could maybe suggest something else, or I could maybe mm. do something else. And, and sometimes a bit of volunteering can yes. make you very indispensable. And also, of course, buffs up your resume or yes. your CV. Um, and then writing about that can also you know, enhance mm. what you bring to um, others when you present yourself. You can say, I problem solved here, and I wrote about it in this manner. You know? yeah, and that so. can... Um, I really do believe that we've never needed creative and critical um, thinkers more. And Agreed. That Agreed. anyone with a literature background or an arts background is just as well-placed as anyone with a business or economics degree Agreed. to find a place in the world. And we live in a world anyway where that sense of you join an organization and you just climb up, that's right. all gone. Yes. So everything is about <laughs> lateral movement uh, in whatever realm one is in. And there's always something refreshing about someone who can bring that imaginative energy, but you also have to be able to write well. I mean, if you, I, I would also say, make sure your self-presentation and writing is clean. You know, make sure you've mastered just the basics of. Um, you know, I'm I'm talking to undergrads now, sure. not to someone at your level where no, this would no, be of completely um, meaningless advice. You're well <laughs> beyond that, but I'm thinking about younger. No, listeners absolutely. to your podcast. Absolutely. And, um, who have so much intellectual and imaginative energy. That's you know, right. But it needs to be um, channeled and disciplined. That's right. So, yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, I found that uh, I've taught undergraduates as well. And there were so many people who, you know, when you read something and you're like, this is great. Mm-hmm. Just go over it a few times. Like, let's just kind of make some, and they're kind of like, eh, it, it, right. it, it, that's what it is. That's how it, that's how it lives. That's how it came out. And while I, again, as someone who's not 
naturally great with structure. I admire that on a certain level. On another, it's like, but you want people to be able to, to get it. You want of people course. to be able to access it, right? Yeah. So it's, I think it's an important, I think it's important to make that clear that I'm not trying to hem you in. I'm not trying to mm-hmm. change you so much as make it something that, you know, comes up to a level where people can well, appreciate it for what it is. No one's really going to understand that until they read widely, you know. So True. that's the other, that's the best counsel I could ever give Perfect. anyone is if yes. you're if if the realm of words is where your heart yes. lies you don't learn to write by writing you learn to write by reading you right. have to be writing all the time right. but you can't simply just teach yourself there right. are very 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 few success I, I I don't know if I could think of one right. who's a wonderful writer who never read a book I mean that right. just seems ludicrous <laughs> I don't know if that exists there are some who've read right. not as much as others right. or in a more um, channeled manner right. but um, unfortunately, too many readers today are are pretty parochial in their in their interests, and in they don't have a good map of the landscape, and they're cheating themselves of so many. You know, it's like they're only eating the crackers and they're not <laughs> eating the whole dinner. Right. You know. Right. And um, that's a shame. That's a shame. I think that's a I think that's a great way to sort of look at it, and it's also a great way to sort of frame it because, again, it's not. It's not, we're going through so many changes in this world, and I think the canon is one of them, and I think it should be one of them, where it should be dismantled a little bit, and I think it should be added to, and I think we obviously need more women, more people of color, you know, just different voices in there. But at the same time, those voices have to be in there, and as readers and writers, we should be diving into that, and we should be aware of who has come before. and as of the recording of this podcast, um, we just lost um, <sighs> Shange. Yeah, yeah I, I, I just, I'm like, ooh, I'm getting chills. But she, you know, she was one of the first writers. I saw her choreo poem, you know, and it touched me in a way that made me understand that this is writing too, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so she's one of those writers who you feel, like I felt like, my world was was broken open sure because it's yeah. something that I never thought could be coming f- it just it just made me see everything in a different way mm-hmm. and I think it's really important to mix all of these things right so not just check off right just everybody because you've got to understand that the voices are varied and the world is large absolutely and we've got to dive in absolutely um, absolutely and that, I mean, without that diversity, your your own sense of what language can do is impoverished. Right. Um, but, you know, I, w- I guess I, I would always urge my students who tend to find one or two writers they like and they right. just, like, Stick pile to on all right. that to just remember. Also to remember that, you know, we live in a time of such intense xenophobia and nationalism and only right. about 3% of the literature we read here is in translation. And translators, translation and translators are, you know, unsung heroes and That's right. are bringing us gifts that we are, as Americans, sort of ludicrously unaware of and not accepting and celebrating. Right. And so I'm always pushing literature and translation on everyone I know. <laughs> and, yeah. No, I think that's wonderful, and I think it, it is something to think about because it's important to kind of also like film, you know, just also just watching, you know, oh, I don't like subtitles. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of human 
things that you kind of, you almost don't need the subtitles at certain points, even if you don't speak the language. And so it's important to see outside of, you know, Absolutely. your space and, oh, look, you know, um, she's just like my mother, even though this is a country that I've never been mm-hmm. to in a place, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been wonderful. Well, for me too, Holly. <laughs> this Thank has been you wonderful. So I guess we'll stop there. I think we'll stop there. But, you know, I really appreciate, I just appreciate you coming in and really kind of stretching, you know, stretching the bounds of this podcast and, you know, just talking so generously about your work. Um, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Well, I look forward to hearing all the podcasts in, that have already happened and to come. <laughs> yes. And thank you for your own generosity. Thank you. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much for dropping in on my conversation with Martha Cooley. Any other information about Martha can be found on her website, which can be found on my website. And that is at hollyameaton.wixsite.com backslash some say. Coming up, we have some really great guests, and I'm excited for you to hear the conversations that I've had with them. I am always looking for new voices to come and talk with me on the mic. So if you know anyone, or if you're that person, um, shoot me an email at somesaypodcast at gmail.com. Okay, have a great couple weeks. I'll see you in two. And signing off for now, but talk soon. Have a good one.